0: And before I begin, I want to mention something, which is that sometimes my post-colonial studies colleagues, they object to my engagement with Heidegger, Mm. and their argument is, why? Why engage with Heidegger? He was a Nazi, Mm -hmm. he is Eurocentric, he is a Western thinker, so why engage with him? So my answer is, my my answer to these objections is that first we need to engage with Heidegger as long as this planet is uh, dominated by the logic of modern technology. So there is no circumventing Heidegger if we if we need to address that. And secondly, Heidegger's alleged Eurocentrism lives side by side with his with the most profound critique of Western uh, uh, tradition. So uh, on this account, we, we, even from a decolonial, postcolonial standpoint, we cannot uh, ignore Heidegger. And uh, lastly, uh, from a decolonial perspective. An engagement with Heidegger is necessary because only by engaging with the, uh, I can say, pinnacle of Western philosophical tradition that we can get out of the metaphysical prison that is also a result of Western philosophical tradition. So uh, uh, with these thoughts uh, I would like to begin. So what I have tried to do here is uh, a little bit of analysis of what Heidegger had written and I have also, towards the end, tried to enact a creative confrontation with Heidegger from my own standpoint. Uh, so, in the eleventh black book, Heidegger makes an intriguing remark about the seven pillars of wisdom, an autobiographical account of the Arab revolt during the First World War by the British spy Thomas Edward Lawrence, uh, popularly known as Lawrence of Arabia. The book, which was also turned into a 1962 movie, Lawrence of Arabia, is a required reading for army trainees uh, in many Western countries. And Heidegger calls this book, the first bravest book of great reticence. This is a quote from Blackwell. Uh, so, reticence here is no ordinary virtue. Heidegger tells us in the contributions, quote, nearness to the last God is reticence, which must be set into work and word in this style of restraint. Unquote. Heidegger cautions us, this book, last, uh, several pillars of wisdom, should not be Uh, read merely as adventurous stories of a spy, a history of Arabs, or as the lived experiences of its author. Instead, quote, what occurs in the book is the overcoming of the machination of being in a deliberately disinterested suffering of the compulsions and enchantments of that machination, all this on the basis of surmising the closure Of other possibilities of being, for which every essential future human being must become a poetizing, thinking questioner who has refused all experience and from grave distrust, and this is very important, already destroys all substitute forms of humanity. Once concocted out of things, By God. Heidegger locating the overcoming of the machination of being in the actions of a British spy is indeed strange. The quote unquote greatness of Lawrence lies in enacting a creative confrontation with the Arab world and in subduing that substitute form of humanity to his own supreme will. For Heidegger, Such struggle between nations is of paramount importance. And from from another uh, text from the same, around the same time, 1936, we have this quote, quote, We must not forget that the Greeks did not become what they are and will be forever by secluding themselves in their space, only through the harshest but creative confrontation with the element which was most alien and hostile to them, is, the Asian element, did they rise to the brief course of their historical uniqueness and greatness." Heidegger's discourse on confrontation here refers to an originary struggle which has an ontological status for him. His name for this creative confrontation is Ozynlander-Setson. So what is this? Two texts, two other texts from the 30s can help us understand what this notion of creative confrontation is and these texts are Introduction to Metaphysics and Being and truth. Uh, so this notion of confrontation which is variously translated as creative confrontation, just confrontation, ontopoetic conf- confrontation and so on and so on in, in, in different texts. Uh, so this confrontation is very similar to Heraclitean Polymos. Following Heraclitus, Heidegger thinks about this struggle as something and, quote, first and foremost allows but essentially unfolds to step apart in opposition. First allows, and this is very very important, first allows position and status and rank to establish themselves in coming to presence, in confrontation Word comes to be, polemos and logos are the same. This unity of polemos and logos, sign and Saxon and reality itself is the juncture for Heidegger, where authentic history originates. This struggle, this struggle is against the overwhelming sway. The work of the creators, the poets, thinkers, and statesmen that sustains this struggle is directed against, I quote, the overwhelming sway, they throw the counterweight of their work and capture in this work the word that is thereby opened up. With these words, this way, fuses, first comes to a stand in what comes to presence, unquote. So, the overwhelming sway is the key term here that makes a distinction between great, between what is great and what is not, between what is a world and what is just chaos. A little earlier in the same text, the introduction to Paraphysics, uh, Heidegger says, Fusis means emergent self appraising, the self unfolding that abides in itself. This sway is overwhelming coming to presence that has not yet been surmounted in thinking, insofar as this way struggles itself forth as a world. Through world beings first come into being. Unto. The word Heidegger uses for this way is Walton, or thus Walton. Gregory fried and Richard Polt, the translators of Introduction to Metaphysics, wrote, uh, uh, wrote in their introduction, that Walton is related to Gewalt, which means violence. The other meanings of Walton include, according to them, to prevail, to reign, to govern, and to dominate. They also urge the reader to lend special attention to the way in which, quote, Heidegger seeks to interpret thesis as this sway, Throughout the text, Heidegger uses the adjective violent to describe this way. Uh, here are two quotes. Uh, first is the originally emergent self appraising of the violent forces of what holds sway. And the second one is the violent, the overwhelming is the essential character of this way itself. For Heidegger, fuses. Self emergence or revealing of beings is a violent process. In the last uh, session of his last seminar, The Beast and the Sovereign, the thought talked at some length about the place of Walton in Heidegger. Last, I think, 20 or so pages are devoted to just this. Uh, uh, here is a quote It is as if to be beings, to be beings, and Walton were the same thing, the reader says. This Walton denotes, quote, prepotency in the sense of the prevailing that wins out in a combat. So, at the very heart of everything is this confrontation, uh, that wins out in a combat, unquote. He further adds that as he himself does not have time to do this, after a year or so he died, and this was the last seminar, Uh, But but he adds there, however, quote, let me point out at least that you can see it extend as much to the Logos precisely as to Fuses, Uh, But there is another layer of violence, above which Drida is silent, at least in this seminar. This overwhelming violence way is then surmounted in thinking to form a word. Thus the word-forming process is based on a double gesture of violence, the violence of the overwhelming sway, and then the violent surmounting of this sway in thinking. It is here that Heidegger shows his ethnocentrism most clearly. Uh, if, quote, the essence of being is struggle, as he says in 1933-34 seminars, Being and Truth, then it must need an enemy. And who is an enemy? The enemy is someone, and here is a quote, who poses an essential threat to the design of the people. If it seems, sometimes it can seem that there is no enemy, enemy is missing. And if it seems that the enemy is missing, then Heidegger says, quote, it is a fundamental requirement to find the enemy, to expose the enemy to the light, or even first to make the enemy so that this standing against the enemy may happen, and so that design may not lose its edge." So, what follows from this is that the greatness of what is great can only be sustained through a constant struggle, a perpetual surmounting of the other. So, this is in my opinion, not philosophy in the ordinary sense. What Heidegger is doing here is not philosophizing in the ordinary sense. It is more like cosmology. Uh, we can say a peculiarly Heideggerian philosophical cosmology. It is about how the world originates as such. Yak Hui, a Chinese scholar, uh, he has written a wonderful book, The Question Concerning Technology in China. Uh, he has pointed out. Cosmotechnics, so what he has done, he has pluralized this cosmological aspect Uh, by highlighting the connection every notion of techniques has with the corresponding cosmology of the culture from which it originates. So when we read Heidegger on technology, we get this sense again and again and again that it's Western metaphysics. The West was destined to be the way it is. It is the originary sending of being, this way, that's why it is like this, that's why the West has dominated this planet, and so on. So this originary struggle not only lets the words to be in the first place, it also determines the interrelations that structure that word internally. It lets the status, position and rank established between those who struggle with each other. The Greek quote-unquote greatness is established over and against the Asian quote-unquote inferior. A key passage, another key passage from Being a Truth makes it clear. Quote, This means that the powers of destruction and ruination have their home in beings themselves. In struggle and through struggle, they are only subdued and bound. For these powers fundamentally break forth as, and I love this line, For these powers fundamentally break forth as the unbridled, the unrestrained, the ecstatic and wild, the raving, the asiatic. Unquote. He made these comments while interpreting Heraclitus Fragment 53 about the Polemos being king and father of all. Heidegger declares this fragment to be a primal declaration that has a self-ruling gravity of its own. So a primal declaration with a self-ruling gravity is not just philosophizing in the sense that cerebral activity, it is something more most fundamental, ontologically speaking, that is happening here. Uh, While interpreting the second part of the fragment where Heraclitus asserts that it is Polemos itself that makes some human beings kings and some others servants, Heidegger leaves a damning clue about how he sees human difference, quote, one is a servant not because they simply are servants in addition to other types, but because this being contains in itself a defeat, a denial, a deficiency, a cowardice, indeed perhaps a will to be lowly and base. This self-contained defeat, denial and deficiency is also connected with the act of philosophizing, the task of thinking. Confrontation is genuine criticism. Heidegger tells us in his Nietzsche lectures, thinking, much like confrontation and polemos, also establishes the difference between what is great and what is lowly. The task of genuine critique is also to establish status, position, and rank. So, I'm I'm, I'm too (laughs) low. It's touching. Okay. in what is a thing? Heidegger notes that the purpose of critique is to establish a contrast against others. Quote, because critique is a separation and lifting out of the special, the uncommon, and at the same time decisive, therefore, only in consequence is it also a rejection of the commonplace and unsuitable, Unquote. Etymologically speaking, also means to set apart from each other. Perhaps a case can be made here about the connection between Heidegger's insistence on the importance of status, position and rank, and a contrast against others on the one hand, and his disastrous politics on the other. Heidegger's reuminations about the different status of different peoples are rooted in his philosophical cosmology. Here, he has striking resemblance with connection between Hindu caste system and its cosmology. Hindu caste system is also based in cosmology. Uh, The different castes are said to be of different social rank and status because they originate from different body parts of Brahma, the supreme reality. Brahmins from the mouth, Kshatriyas from the arms and the chest, Vashyas from the stomach and finally the Shudras from the feet. But this is... <coughs> Another matter, so we, we cannot go into detail. So let's come back to colonialism. What all of this means for colonialism. It goes without saying that colonialism is a very violent confrontation. So colonialism, the West came to hold sway over the entire planet. Can we understand the colonial encounter as this creative confrontation or Zion If we attend to Heidegger's characterization of this confrontation, the answer seems to be ambiguous, it's it's, it's not clear. Colonialism is not this confrontation because this original strife takes place only when the powers in conflict are still abiding in their greatness. This does not seem to be the case because, uh, 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 because Uh, Heidegger Heidegger does not celebrate West's domination of the entire planet through colonization. Colonization, for Heidegger, is rather a symptom of West's decline. Uh, Quote, in the planetary imperialism of technologically organized man, the subjectivism of man attains its acme, from which point it will descend to the level of organized uniformity and there firmly establish itself, this uniformity becomes the surest instrument of total i.e. technological rule over the earth." In his lecture course on Parmenides, Heidegger rejects imperialism as a Roman invention. So colonialism is not this confrontation in the Heideggerian sense. It is instead a testament to the rise of unstoppable nihilism to which the West as Heidegger put it, is destined from its very origins. However, they, 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 so there is the ambiguity. However, exceptional individuals like Thomas Edward Lawrence, the British spy, seem to be still capable of engaging in this and interception with substitute forms of humanity, concocted out of things by God. I believe this, this, this expression refers to Islam. Um, so, okay, does this mean that Heidegger's philosophy is forever contaminated by violence? I don't think so. There are at least, so this is the, not the only type of confrontation because here we are dealing only with the thirties. Uh, there are at least two other types of confrontation that are implicit in Heidegger's work. The second can be seen in hap- happening in the black notebooks. So, what is this second type of confrontation? So, it, it's not explicitly named as such, but I think if we, if we read black notebooks, we can, we can infer that, but this is what is happening. I want to suggest that these notebooks are Heidegger's confrontation with his own thinking, and the thinking itself. Heidegger asks in the notebooks, what should happen? And answers. Quote: Taking action, creatively acting, and only speaking it of it to oneself. Unquote. This speaking only to oneself takes the form of internal or Zayner's song Heidegger is trying to enact both in the black notebooks and his other non-public writings, which Daniela Valega New has called his poetic writings. And perhaps that is why there are passages like these. Uh, Most interpreters I have read, they reject these passages as childish, as just his uh, his out as if he was out of his mind. But I don't think so. So here is one passage. Quote, why do I have two G's in my name? Heidegger, two G's. Why else except that I recognize but constantly matters? <laughs> Benevolence and patience. I am supreme. With, unquote. So, uh, at the end of the sixth notebook, he notes an uncanny play of historiological dates in the foreground of abyssal German history, which includes some prominent dates. For example, uh, Holderlin is committed to the asylum, Nietzsche writes this book, and so on and so uh, he puts his own birthday at the end, signaling the importance of his own coming into this world from a being historical perspective. In the 14th notebook, he muses about when his own name would go into oblivion and gives it the year 2337, exact date, roughly three centuries from now. So, what is this? What is happening here? I don't think that it's just megalomania, a thinking gone berserk. I believe it is evidence of Heidegger's struggle against himself. He is trying to come to terms with who he is, what his thinking is, what thinking itself is. So, but why, why is he struggling with himself? Has he realized that he will have to go beyond thinking itself? Yes, I think. Commenting on the anti-semitic statements in the black notebooks, Robert Bernaskelling has rightly noted that it is not just Heidegger's problem, it is Western philosophy's problem. (coughs) Racism runs through Western philosophy and could not be dismissed by cliched responses such as a child of his or her own time. But I want to, I I agree with uh, this, but I want to go a step further and claim that it is not a problem of Western philosophy only, but a problem of thinking as such. Uh, Heidegger's conception of thinking as something that bestows status, position and rank, in contrast to others, makes it impossible to dissociate this thinking in the 30s from his disastrous politics. So another question here. Why did Heidegger let the anti-semitic remarks stand in the black notebooks and also allowed their publication? The decision about publication was made quite late in his life, towards the end, the 70s. Keeping in mind the backlash he had already received on this question, he could have easily destroyed these notebooks or chosen not to publish these notebooks or... uh, uh, he could have omitted these remarks, these anti-semitic remarks, but he didn't do that. And there is a particular reason why he didn't do it. Black notebooks are Heidegger's own downgoing through his confrontation with himself. As we learned yesterday from Lin Ma, this downgoing is not merely dissent. It's not merely negative. It is also assent. It is the opening towards the other beginning and also a third form of confrontation. So what is this third form of confrontation? The third type of confrontation does not precisely exist in Heidegger's works. He was never able to enact it, but he got some glimpses of this third type of confrontation. During his journey to Greece in the early 1960s, Heidegger hinted at a different type of ozain and reception, And here is a quote. The confrontation with the Asiatic element was for the Greek Dasein a fruitful necessity. This confrontation is for us today in an entirely different way and to a greater extent the decision about the destiny of Europe and what is called the Western world. Unquote. Brett Davis in an article from Onto Historical Ethnocentrism to East-West Dialogue, Brett Davis has suggested that Heidegger moved gradually away from his onto historical ethnocentrism in the 1930s to the necessity of East-West dialogue. However, Lin Ma and Chuck Van Breckel have rightly suggested that Heidegger failed to quote provide us with a positive ontological account of East-West dialogue because he couldn't overcome the bias that true philosophy is the sole property of the West." I want to develop this line of thinking further by arguing that Heidegger failed to provide a positive ontological account of East-West dialogue also because of his inability to fully realize this third type of confrontation so, but what does this third type of confrontation look like? So, I am also doing uh, what Matthew said, uh, following Jeff Malpass that we cannot understand black notebooks in seclusion. We will have to contextualize with these, uh, with the other writings. So, what I am trying to do here is that on the one hand, there is there are thirties ethnocentric texts. And uh, the black notebooks, although chronologically black notebooks go parallel with these texts, but black, black notebooks have a different provenance. And then there is the passage, Heidegger goes through it and sees something on the other side, which becomes visible especially in two texts from late 60s, one from the late 66, uh, 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 which is called the Homeland. Uh, when on the 7th centenary of uh, his hometown, Miskirch he delivered this address, but I haven't uh, analyzed it because it, 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 my presentation was going really too long. And the second text is late 1974. And this text I would like to talk about a bit much. Towards the end of his life in 1974, Heidegger wrote a short, poetic and enigmatic text the part of holy names. He opens this text with a quote from Hulderlin, and this quote is and a poet gladly joins with others, so that they may help him understand. Unquote. We must gladly join with the others in order to understand. Through an alternative reading of this text, or in other words, in gladly joining with Heidegger and Hölderlin so that they can help me understand, I want to enact a different Ozain and between Heidegger's longing to escape Western metaphysics and still unenflamed remnants of sex spirituality. It is this third type of Ozain and that Heidegger could not himself practice, but he got a faint insight into what it might look like. Heidegger locates the crisis of the West in the lack of holy names. Holy names are wanting, said holder uh, Heidegger follows the poet and declares, quote, insight into the singularity of this want, which could lead to an understanding of the distress, would be accorded by the generous grant of the experience of its origin. The origin presumably conceals itself in the self-denial of the holy and prohibits a suitable naming of the appropriate and self-illuminating name befitting to it." Heidegger's uh, quest reaches its uh, its highest form here. It is here that we need to start dealing with Heidegger if we want to deal with him at all. On the one hand, Heidegger's longing gains its purest form in this text and on the other, the limits of his thinking are also most clearly revealed. He uses a term which he seldom used elsewhere, Das Gestellness. Although the translator of this text, Bernhard Radloff, treats it as a synonym of Das Gestell, Lin Ma and Jacques Van Breckel have recently said that quote, there exists a subtle differentiation which is still in connection in shades of meaning between these two words Gestel and Gestelness. Uh, so these two words denote two sides of the same coin. Where danger is, there grows saving power also. While gestel denotes the danger side, Gestellness denotes more of the side of the saving power. It is more a matter of emphasizing a particular aspect of the same term. Our fate in the technological age depends on our ability to experience Gestellness. Heidegger argues, quote, were the technological age capable of experiencing the power of, the, of, of thus gestelness, which determines it in such a form that it became apparent how, namely in a distorted way, this want rules it. Then the being open of man would be allotted participation in the open region of the saving. Unquote. Realizing this need for this want, realizing the need for this want might be the key that can help us get out of the logic of gesture. So a question that remains unanswered in Heidegger uh, is how do we join the others to understand? But there is a hint. On the occasion of Heidegger's 80th birthday, the University of Hawaii organized a conference on the theme of Heidegger and Eastern Thought. Heidegger wrote a letter to the conference organizers, in this letter he talked about an unfortunate circumstance, which hinders the dialogue between Western and Eastern thinkers. And he describes this uh, circumstance as follows, quote, the greatest difficulty in this enterprise always lies, as far as I can see, in the fact that with few exceptions, there is no command of Eastern languages either in Europe or in the United States A translation of Eastern thought into English on the other hand remains as does every translation an expedient." So most Orientalist scholars from the West who do have mastery of Eastern languages are not philosophers in Heidegger's sense but linguists uh, who they perform textual analysis and so on and so on. they also unwittingly impose Western frameworks of thinking over Eastern texts. So this the whole idea behind the critique of Orientalism is this, that the lens through which they read these texts is Western through and through. Uh, what Heidegger is calling for here is something different. He is asking for an engagement with the primordial power of founding words. In other languages and this was also tested to one of the first uh, Indian scholars to engage with Heidegger was Jadaab Lal Mehta and he went to meet Heidegger once and he has written that Heidegger asks him certain words what is this what is Fusis called in Sanskrit and so so he was very much interested in these primordial founding words in other languages unfortunately, this realization came too late for him to join others. So, what are those others? What, what, what those others might look like? 12th century Punjabi Sufi poet Baba Freed, whose verses are a part of the Sikh scripture, Sri Granth Sahil, uses a word, or rather a holy name that names this word for holy names. It is called Birha. It is the this term Birha is obviously untranslatable but when we translate this couplet from his poetry, we can get a sense of it, what, what it might look like. So it goes, Birha birha akhiya birha tu sultan Frida birho na upajay so tan, jaan masan So my translation goes like this. Everyone cries separation, separation. The separation is the king of all free that body is like a graveyard in which the acute awareness of this separation does not awaken. So if your body does not feel this longing, then your body is like a graveyard. It's not even a living body. So two things are important here. The first is that Birha is called a Sultan in this couplet. Sultan is the word for a king. King is called Sultan, it is uh, a Middle-Eastern origin word, not South Asian. Just as Polemos rules everything in Heraclitus, Birha rules everything for Baba Freed. Heidegger understands this as the one of holy names in this text. And the second thing about this is that Birha is not just separation. I have translated it separation but it's an inadequate translation as every translation is. It is the acute bodily awareness of distress caused by the lack of holy names. It is physical pain caused by a longing. The longing here is the longing for the divine. It names that powerful longing that makes the body ache. Without this physical longing, the body is like a graveyard. This bodily dimension is, I argue, what is missing in Heidegger. It's it's not the body as a philosophical concept. So, this is entirely something else, I have to use the word body, it's a linguistic constraint, but what I am talking about is something else. So, what is this missing bodily dimension? In a brilliant critique of Heidegger, Nietzsche, Nietzsche was born posthumous, we know, uh, Nietzsche hints at this bodily dimension in the section 419 of *Will to Power*. Nietzsche engages in a critique of German philosophy that uncannily looks like a critique of Heidegger's entire work. Nietzsche declares that, "Quote: German philosophy as a whole is the most fundamental form of homesickness there has ever been—the longing for the best that ever existed. On the one is no longer at home anywhere." at least one longs back for that place in which alone one can be at home because it is the only place in which one would want to be at home the Greek word but unfortunately all the bridges according to Nietzsche that lead to this ancient Greek word are broken except the rainbow bridges of concepts Uh, German philosophy is, Nietzsche says quote, a will to go on with the discovery of antiquity, the digging up of ancient philosophy, above all of the pre-Socratics, the most deeply buried of all Greek temples, Who can fail to hear hear the critique of Heidegger, because what Heidegger focused most of all was this return to the pre-Socratics. But Nietzsche does not stop there. He declares that a few centuries from now the real dignity of German philosophy would be located in the gradual reclamation of the soil of antiquity. But why this return to antiquity? He says, his answer is, to repair a broken bond, the bond with the Greeks, the, uh, uh, the highest type of man. We, the Germans, Nietzsche says, are growing more Greek by the day, coming closer to all of these fundamental forms of world interpretation devised devised, uh, by the Greek spirit through Anaximander, Heraclitus, Promenides and others. However, to be fair, this becoming Greek Greek of the Germans is happening only in Nietzsche says, Concepts and evaluations as Hellenizing ghosts. So, what is a ghost? Something without a body, so, uh, an apparition, something, an entity that is that lacks a body. Hellenizing ghosts. Nietzsche was acutely aware about the missing bodily dimension from German philosophy's declamation of the ancient Greek soul. However, he had hope. Quote, But one day, Nietzsche said, "Let us hope." also in our bodies. Herein lies my hope for the German character." So what is the meaning of this becoming like the Greeks in our bodies? We can only surmise about this, but it surely has something to do with the spiritual decline of the world that both Nietzsche and Heidegger are uh, are struggling against. And that is why Derrida performs deconstruction of Heidegger through Nietzsche, both in de France and the ends of man. In de France, Derida comments on a passage from an fragment where Heidegger says, quote, in order to name the essential nature of being, language would have to find a single word, a unique word, unquote. Commenting on this longing for a unique word, what he calls Heideggerian hope, Derrida says, quote, there will be no unique name, even if it were the name of being. And we must think this without nostalgia, that is, outside of the myth of a purely maternal or paternal language, a lost native country of thought. On the contrary, we must affirm this in the sense in which Nietzsche puts affirmation into play, in a certain laughter and a certain step of the dance. And this this is where the body comes in. Unquote. Uh, similarly, in The Ends of Man, Derrida deconstructs Heidegger's national philosophical humanism through Nietzsche, commenting on Nietzsche's difference between the superior man, who is abandoned in distress in a last movement of pity, and the superman, who awakens and leaves, and whose laughter is directed toward a return, which neither takes the form of the metaphysical repetition of humanism, as Derrida alleges about Heidegger nor that of a memorial or a guarding of the meaning of being, as is clear. Heidegger is doing He, the Superman, says Derrida, quote, will dance outside the house, outside the house of being, language. No doubt that Nietzsche called for an active forgetting of being. It would not have metaphysical form imputed to it by Heidegger, Uncle. Dancing and laughing Nietzsche deconstructs thinking Heidegger. Via the rhythm. This dancing and laughing body, the ecstatic body, is what is missing in Heidegger, if not body as a philosophical concept. This bodily dimension should not be understood in biological or subjective terms. It is not some new age miraculous practice that can renew or awaken our bodies epigenetically as we hear about yoga and other things. It's not that. It is rather the movement of the transcendent element, for lack of a better expression, entering our bodies. It is when the divine makes its presence felt in the human. It is such an event of appropriation that stirs the sensible transcendental. And here I am using a uh, phrase from Lucy Riquet. It stirs the sensible transcendental in the human body. Heidegger might have realized it if he was willing to gladly join others in a friendly confrontation to understand how to let the distress caused by the lack of holy names take root in one's body. If he had done that, he might have called it the other Ereignis, a door opening towards the other beginning. Thank you very much.